I talked to Brother Rick this morning and I said, what was your Sunday school about? Because we couldn't make it. He said, oh, it's on the names of God. My first point is on the name of God. So I think the Lord is trying to tell us something. Anyway, so good evening. Thanks for coming along tonight. It's a very warm night, out, warm evening out there. And, um, you know, sometimes we feel, uh, oh, I have to go to church in the evening when it's uncomfortable. But look, I, I counted a privilege and a challenge to preach to uh, my fellow believers. So I trust you'll be blessed by the reading of God's word. And uh, look, because you're seasoned believers, my biggest fear is that you might find the message boring. But I console myself and say, well, it's good to be reminded of what God has told us. Now, many leaders um, who leave their, um, uh, their, their uh, people that they're caring for, many leaders who leave those people for a period of time or a long period of time, usually have some last things to, the, to say to them who they've left behind. Um, you know, this might be like a formal final meeting or they may have a list of instructions um, to prepare people for actions that they're supposed to take in their absence. And of course our pastor is no different. He's, um, he's left some of us uh, a list of instructions um, to prepare for any actions to be taken in his absence. Now, um, Jesus is no different. And while the message tonight is not exactly specified as instructions to the disciples and as an extension to instructions for us, the responsibilities of, um, of what he says, the, the responsibilities that flow from what he says can be taken as instructions for us Christians uh, to implement while he's gone, um, until uh, he returns or until we're taken up to glory. So we're going to look at uh, some verses in John chapter 17 tonight. Now the setting here is that Jesus was speaking to his disciples just before he was out to go, about to go to, out to the Garden of, of Gethsemane and where the results of the betrayal of Judas were to become evident in, in literally a few hours' time. So probably this was a Thursday night or afternoon just before he was crucified on the Friday. So chapter 17 of the book of John records Jesus lifting up his eyes to heaven and praying to his Father. Now that prayer is extremely important. You would think that he would pray for himself, but in true unselfish fashion... Jesus prays for his disciples in this stressful hour. So Jesus prays to God that he would preserve his disciples in verse 6 and for all other believers, so that's us, we're believers in Christ now, he prayed for us in verse 20. So this is the context, the prayer of Jesus and, and one of the commentators calls this the Lord's Prayer. And, and of course the other prayer commonly known by the same name is about Jesus instructing his disciples on how to pray. Um, but here, this one is what the Lord prayed to his Father for the disciples and by extension uh, for us in his time of greatest stress. Now at the close of this solemn meeting, uh, he went into the Garden of Gethsemane 
before he was to face that last great storm of human and diabolical hatred. So you can imagine the stress. And we know that later in the Garden of the Gethsemane, Jesus prayed and uh, sweated uh, drops of blood. I don't think we can really appreciate uh, the stress of the moment. But anyway, so if you'll read with me John 17, verse 1, 6 to 10. If we'd be upstanding, please, in, refer- in uh, reverence for the word of God. John 17, 1. And these words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son, that thy son may also glorify thee. Verse 6. And I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given to me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them, I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine, and all are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now let's, uh, let's pray and ask the Lord to bless us. Father God, we pray for your grace and mercy as we look into your perfect word. Father, I pray for your undertaking for each one of us. Lord, I pray for your conviction for my heart first and for the conviction of my brethren here. Lord, undertake for each one of us. Bless us, we pray. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So these these words are simple, but the thoughts are possibly the most profound in the Bible because they reveal some high and holy privileges belonging to his loved ones. These are privileges for us. We'll cover three of these privileges tonight, and next Sunday night um, we'll cover another four. So this is a two-part message. But what we need to see are some of the responsibilities that are ours as a consequence of those privileges. So the three privileges, responsibilities for tonight are related to these three verses. John 17, 6. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me. And then verse 8. I have given them the words which thou gavest me and they received them. And verse 10. All are mine, all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. They're the three verses we'll look at tonight. Now, I don't want to put anyone on a guilt, guilt trip. There are times when guilt can lead to repentance. But I really, see, I really want us to see these privileges in a more positive light. John 3, uh, first, first John 5 uh, says that, that God's commandments are not grievous unto us. And Matthew 11 says... When Jesus is speaking, he says, Come unto me, all ye that, are lab- that labour and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. 
So I would rather tonight that we see our responsibilities as we go through them in this light, that we may, in fact, rejoice in fulfilling those responsibilities as we see more of what Jesus has done for us that maybe we are more likely to follow him wholeheartedly and obey him wholeheartedly rather than being convicted of our sin all the time. So therefore, uh, let's look at the first privilege. So the first privilege comes from John 17, 6. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. So the responsibility here is to those to whom his name has been revealed. And of course it's been revealed to us as well through, through the Bible. Now the meaning of thy name, what does that name represent? Well, of course, it represents his character, doesn't it? So we could render this verse in a slightly different way. Jesus could be saying it this way. I have revealed the perfections of thy character to those who thou hast given me from the world. I have revealed the perfections of thy character. Now, firstly, the disciples were from the world. So what characterises one from the world? How? How is one from the world labelled? And the Bible is very clear and uh, as was mentioned before, thank you Brother Peter for sharing yesterday. This prompted me to put this set of verses right here. Galatians 5.19, this characterises those from the world. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, drunkenness, murders, revelings, and such like. And verse 17, we have verse 17, for the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary one to another, so that we cannot do the things that we would. That is the characteristic of someone from the world. And unfortunately, this is here for our learning as well, even as redeemed people, that we would see that these characteristics still lurk inside there. Now, not only do, um, do we behave like this, and especially when we're unsaved, but often the world applauds this behaviour. Just look at some of the secular songs that are written, um, some of the secular movies and some of the secular plays that are put on. There are many instances where the hero is portrayed as you know, a goody-goody, and that, that means someone with some uh, valuable morals, someone who doesn't really want to do wrong. And in the movie, these morals get in the way of the desired goal. For example, a heroine can't snare her man because he's a bit naughty. And, you know, translate naughty into sinful, but she still wants this man. Uh, but when the, when the heroine reduces her morals a little bit, relaxes them, um, and then the two fall in love. And the audience loves it. The audience applauds it, applauds it. And many times, even as Christians, we excuse our own sin while accusing another Christian of, of wrongdoing. And we feel justified. And we come to church thinking, acting in, in, as if we're righteous. And it's like, it's like we are incapable of doing good. And we aren't. We aren't capable, as verse 17 says, for um, the flesh lusts against the spirit or the spirit of God and the spirit against the flesh 
And these are contrary, so that you cannot do the things that you would. So this characterises those from the world. The apostles were like this. That's why it's said this way. Jesus was given these men from the world. And we're the same. We're from the world. This was and is our characteristic. Now what's the fate of those who are in that form if God doesn't intervene? Of course you know. Galatians 5.21 says, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So you get the picture of the apostles, those from the worlds, and what is God like? Well, we have Isaiah 6.3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And we read it again in, in Revelations 4.8. Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. Not only is our God holy, and his name represents that, but he is separated from sin. Isaiah 57 tells us that he um, lives in the high and lofty, he is the high and lofty one and inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. And he dwells in the high and holy place, a place that we're not at, a place that the, no person is at, and then Isaiah 59 says, But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you, that he will not hear. Separation. Separation, loss of fellowship, as we heard with God, as we heard this morning. This is profound in itself, that here we have sinful man separated from God. I mean, it ought to make people tremble. It, it really should. It should make people tremble. This is part of the character of God that Jesus revealed, his holiness, that Jesus revealed to his disciples. This is one of those perfections of his character. Now, what are the implications of God's perfect character? Proverbs 15.9, The way of the wicked is an abomination unto, unto the Lord. The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination unto the Lord. The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination. He hates sin and he's its uncompromising foe. Ever felt like you're not getting anywhere in the Christian life? Like your prayers are just hitting the ceiling? He's, he's not listening? Well, it could be that God is opposed to us. The Bible says in James 4.6, it says, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. So where it says God resists the proud, he actively opposes. That's the meaning that he actively opposes. He hates sin so much that he needs to actively oppose the proud. Now, now sins, Israel's sin had, had, had raised this wall of partition between them and God. And they had almost, almost a false religion with, with uh, what they were doing in the temple with the, the fact that their Bible had been corrupted uh, over the years, the fact that their um, high priests uh, were very ungodly. So there was this wall of partition um, because of sin. The infinite distance between the sinner and God is because of sin. There was no relationship with God. The sinner and God are at opposite poles of the moral universe. Now, hell is not only 
uh, uh, defined as a place of torment, but it's defined as a place um, of separation from God and from other people. Many people don't realise that, that hell is a place defined as separation from other people. Now, the only way we can fully appreciate the separation of hell is, I think, to think on uh, the deserted island. <laughs> Thank you, Joshua, for bringing that up. Um, you know, you can imagine on an island for the rest of your life, on your own, without a relationship with a person. No hugs from your wife. No one to talk to. You know, I look, I look at our church of redeemed souls and because of varying life experiences, varying expectations, um, etc., we sometimes have differences, don't we? We're not perfect. And sometimes those differences create a bit of friction between, uh, between Christians. But, you know, um, we all still like coming here. We all still crave the fellowship with other Christians who have a similar um, uh, relationship with God. And when you look at any alternative, for example, in our church here, any alternative to coming here each week, the alternative that I think of is, is that, um, you know, we would uh, seek our own entertainment each week. We would seek our own satisfaction each week instead of coming here. And as a redeemed person, I, I just don't see that as a viable, viable option. You know, I would much rather come here and have God teach me how to unstrain my relationship with fellow believers um, than, uh, than seek my own pleasure somewhere else. There is a definite benefit in coming to church every Sunday and maybe every Wednesday. There's a definite benefit in interacting with the believers from all walks of life. So as for living on a deserted island all your days, well, I reckon all the riches of the world <laughs> would not be sufficient payment. So back to the point. We have two verses which we've covered here. Isaiah 59, your iniquities have separated between you and your God. And Isaiah 5, uh, 5, uh, sorry, Proverbs 15, 9, the way of the wicked is an abomination unto the Lord. And as we contemplate these two verses, this is where it lies the need for atonement. This is where uh, our need, the unsaved person's need for atonement shines. Because as, as we think, wow, we're, we're so sinful, we're separated from our holy God. Now when Jesus was manifesting the character of God to the disciples, he didn't stop there. Because that would have meant that they would be all negative. They would be all afraid as they realised the reality. But of course, God's character is uh, described this way. You see, Jesus would have preached to them Psalm 116 verse 5, for example. And Psalm 116 verse 5 says, Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yea, our God is merciful. So God's name, when Jesus revealed God's name to the disciples, he, he revealed to them also his grace, his righteousness, his mercy, to name just a few of the attributes, attributes of his wonderful character. 
And we know that the disciples understood the meaning of, uh, of God's name because they wrote about it in the Bible. We have John 3.16, written by the Apostle John, who is demonstrating how he understands God's character. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So when Jesus, in verse 17, in chapter, verse 6, says, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou hast given me out of the world, he manifested, number one, God's holiness and hatred of sin in man. He manifested God's righteousness in administering and the just punishment of unrepentant people. And then he, he manifested God's grace and mercy in providing an atonement for that sin and, a, and, and an atonement for the separation of the sinner from God. So this is how... So how did the disciples react to such a manifestation? And this has got to be our model. This has got to be our example. How did they react after the resurrection? Well, they listened to him intently. Have a good read. They listened to him intently. They believed what he said. They trusted him. And then they went out and eagerly shared this new possession they had with others, even risking their lives. They endured humiliation for his sake. Terrible humiliation. They served him in any way they could in order to promote the gospel. And of course, each one of you can add a lot more to that list. Most of you know the New Testament well. So the application of this first point is then, what manner of persons then ought we to be with such a possession? When, God, when, when Jesus has revealed to us this characteristic of God, what manner of persons should we be? And what Jesus says to his disciples, he says to each redeemed person, I have manifested thy name. And we can put our name in there. I have manifested my name unto Branko, which thou gavest me out of the world. And you can put your name in there. God has manifested his name, his perfect character to each one of us. What manner of persons ought we to be with such a possession? I don't need to elaborate. I've got two more points to go. We'll be here forever. But you know, you know the responsibility as people from God to whom God's name has been declared, revealed, described. What manner of persons should we be? So that's our first point. Our second point. Let's look at this second privilege. Verse 8. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them. So here is a responsibility as custodians of his word. The, his word has been revealed to us. We read it every Sunday. We can read it any time any place, we can even read it on our phone these days. We don't actually have to have the paper copy. We can read it on our phone. The word is revealed to us. So the word given, I have given unto them the words which thou gave me. You know, from the Greek it means to give, to some, give something to someone of one's own accord to give them that. 
God gave it to us of his own accord. We didn't deserve it. To our advantage, the Greek meaning extends to. To our advantage. And then, then uh, it goes on, it says, Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. We see here that the disciples had come to understand that all things, the message, the mission of Christ, which Christ had, were ultimately from the Father. Christ was faithful in giving the Father's words to the disciples. The disciples had accepted the message and obtained a twofold knowledge. They understood that Christ came from God and that God had sent him. Now, as custodians of God's words, the disciples had responsibility, did they not? At the end of the book of Matthew, we see that Matthew at least understood that responsibility. And, and you probably remember uh, Matthew 28, 18, where Jesus said, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you even unto the end of the age. The disciples, the disciples carried out the responsibility admir admirably, didn't they? Because, you see, we've, we've got the book here. They did their job. They did their job. And in fact, if uh, you go a bit further, and here's, here's the, crux, the crux of this responsibility. Um, if you go to verse 17, the Bible says Jesus prays to, the, to God uh, for the disciples. He says, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Today, this word truth is a very rare commodity, is it not? So, God, Jesus gave the disciples um, the words of God. They are now custodians of these words. And these words are words of truth. But today, everyone seems to be lying from people who offer you services for money to our learned people. Think of evolution. One of the biggest lies of uh, the last three centuries, I think. Think of the supposed reliability of what they call renewable energy when there's not enough things to, to, to build. Um, think of our political leaders stating promises they have no intention of keeping. Remember that promise? Ah. Oh, Electricity bills um, will go down $256 a year. And what about the other promise? Oh, this, we're going to cancel this east-west link and um, it's going to cost you taxpayers nothing. And then later on we find out it cost us $1.2 billion in compensation to the builder and developer. And then, of course, I can't remember who engaged those quarantine guards. I don't know who that was. And, and, you know, you are confined to living, travelling within five kilometres of your house due to health advice. We find out later that that wasn't quite the case. So, of course, not telling the whole truth is lying also. So, truth is a very rare commodity. Now, I'm sure you can think of many other circumstances in everyday life when you made decisions based on something someone told you and it was a lie. Or maybe you lied for your own benefit. Or maybe I lied for my own benefit. And someone else was left to suffer. So we can relate 
truth today and probably throughout history. I would say it's been no different. Truth is a rare commodity in our society. But for the born-again believer, Jesus says in verse 8, For I have given unto them the words which thou hast given me, the words of truth. And the believer has received them. Now this is a real treasure that we have. In 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 a world where truth is so rare, this is a rare treasure for us. And our responsibility is that we must have a mindset for sharing it, of course. We can't bury this treasure in the grave of our own personal interests. For how many of us does the word of the gospel never get beyond our own need? You know, as if we only trusted Christ so that we would prosper or be blessed. You know, we come, we, sometimes we might come to church thinking this re- for this reason as well, that God will prosper us. I mean, he will in a certain way, but that's not the reason we come to church. People are indeed dying every day. And where are they going? Well, Matthew 13 tells us. He says, um, they'll be going into a place where there is wailing and gnashing of teeth. You know, um, this truth came to me quite clearly um, last December when I had COVID. Um, and we couldn't go to the church outreach because of that COVID at the public hall just up the street here. You know, for some days I, I couldn't sleep because I would lie on one side and it was uncomfortable. I'd lie on the other side, it was uncomfortable. On the other side, it was uncomfortable. And so after three days of this, I spoke to my doctor. I said, what's going on here? He said, well, you know, the COVID has attacked your nerves. That's why no position is, is comfortable. But, you know, during that time, I wasn't in great pain, but I was reminded of this verse, Romans 20.10. And it says here that um, they were tormented day and night forever and ever. And I was in torment during the COVID. It, it was torment. I mean, it was not pleasant, even though it didn't hurt. And, uh, you know, it, it was horrible, actually. <laughs> so I thought to myself, well, imagine forever, forever being like this. I'm going to get out of this soon. Maybe a couple of days and I'll be out of this. But if you're in hell, you would have this torment forever and ever. And it just came, it just came home. So... I thought, imagine how much worse hell is. But you see, the lie of the devil, the lie of many people who refuse to trust God, is that this idea of evolution is true. And by extension, that there is no hell. So are our personal interests hindering us from sharing the gospel, from sharing the truth to those who really need it? So the Bible says to us, but we, but we are custodians of this rare commodity, God's words of truth. How many, how many saved people are out there? There might be a lot, but we don't see much witnessing. And we are custodians of this wonderful truth. So the Bible tells us, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and believe and glorify your God which is in heaven. So let us rejoice 
in fulfilling this responsibility as custodians of his word and do our best to share the truth. So the third responsibility we have, verse 10, And all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I, that is Jesus, am glorified in them, that is, in the disciples, and of course, by extension, in us. So we have a responsibility as God-given ones for the glory of his Son. Now, the Greek can be used in a number of ways where it talks about um, glorified. There are a number of ways, but the two of the ways that are listed, I'd like to just um, uh, hone in on those. So one of the ways is uh, that glorified can be used is to make renowned, to, to render illustrious. And the second one is to cause the dignity and worth of Jesus to be revealed, to be acknowledged. So I think you can see where we're going. You know, men of renown is used twice in the Old Testament. Numbers 16.2, And they rose up before Moses, it says, with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. So if we consider this idea of men of renown, we must show and acknowledge that our Lord Jesus Christ is famous, that he's illustrious, that he's excellent. There's no room here for any shame of Christ. There's no room here for, for any embarrassment in, in sharing Christ. He is more famous than anybody we, we could imagine on this earth. Compare how the world gives respect or admiration to famous people, sports stars, singers. In some people's eyes, these sports stars and singers can do no wrong, no matter what they do. Even if they take drugs, they'll make an excuse for them. But our God is more famous. Our Jesus is more famous. So we must magnify Jesus in order to do what Jesus said he would. I am glorified. I am magnified regarded as renowned in them. What better way to magnify Christ than to copy him while we are here on this earth? So Ephesians 5.1 states, Be therefore followers of God. It's, the Greek word means imitators. Be therefore imitators of God, the triune God, the Father, Christ and the Holy Spirit as dear children. So this is how God thinks of his redeemed as his followers, as beloved. That word dear comes from that Greek word agape, that true love. But in this case, the context is beloved. So be therefore imitators of God as beloved children. So in order to copy and imitate Christ, to, to, um, to do this properly, we must draw close to him. We must walk with him. Just coming to church is not enough. We need to seek him in prayer. We need to seek him with our attitude. We must come under his authority and submit and obey him. True obedience arises from marks that the, uh, and marks the growth of a loving relationship with Christ, more so than, than the conviction. As we, as we love him, as 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 we can see what he's done for us. 
So the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 1.12, according to my earnest expectations that Christ shall be magnified in my body. That is, um, in, whether by life, that's in his conduct, and whether by death he was willing to die for Christ. Now we need to consider that in Paul's day, for him and the other apostles, it was no easy task for them. 2 Corinthians uh, uh, 11 tells us that the Apostle Paul was five times um, whipped, 39 lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned. Thrice he was shipwrecked. A night and a day he was in the deep. And of course, you can read the rest. So we can see that it was to the glory of Christ that amid general unbelief and rejection, and it's no different today, is it? general unbelief and rejection, these men dared to trust and serve him. In Australia today, we don't have that sort of impediment to our service for Christ. Not yet, anyway. But what an excellent privilege this is to, to be Christ's, as he says in verse 17.10, I am glorified in them. Imagine, God is glorified in us, in our obedience, how could it be that we could bring glory to him in our sinful nature? But it's redeemed. He's glorified in everyone who trusts him. Everyone who says, okay, I will follow my own will or I'll follow Christ's will. He's glorified in us saying, I'll put my will aside. I'll put it aside because he knows better and I'll follow him. He's glorified in that. What a wonderful thought. What a privilege. So we are to cause, the, the privilege is we are to cause the dignity and worth of Jesus Christ to become manifest and acknowledged by those very things. Even by that little thing, I won't do my will, I'll do God's will. So we are to make the name of Jesus renowned by doing that. We're to make it illustrious. It is illustrious. Some people ask, why are you doing that? It's, it's, it's anathema. When we, when we, like, you know, coming to church twice, three times a week, why do you go there so often? You know, it's, it's, it's just unheard of for some people. But doing that, by doing that, we make Jesus' name renowned. We make it, we render it illustrious. And of course, by many other things, by the, the, thoughts, of the, the thoughts of the mind, by, by our actions, by our decisions, we render glory to him. We render his name illustrious. So we see our calling. Let's walk worthy of it for the glory of his name. Are we doing it? That's the challenge. That's the responsibility from each one of us. So we've covered our three points. So in conclusion, in summary, number one, we have a responsibility as to those to whom his name has been revealed. He has manifested his name to each one of us. He has manifested his holiness and his hatred of our sin. He has manifested his righteousness in administering punishment for unrepentant people and Christians also sometimes suffer 
through trials. He has manifested his name through God's grace and mercy in providing that atonement to each one of us that calls upon it. So what manner of persons ought ought we to be with such a possession? I think we should follow the examples of the apostles, don't you? So secondly, the responsibility as custodians of his word of truth. For I have given unto them the words which thou hast given me. Let us rejoice in fulfilling this responsibility and do our best to share this wonderful truth. And thirdly, as our responsibility as God-given ones for the glory of his Son. I am glorified in them. What a privilege comes with this responsibility. We are to cause the dignity and worth of Jesus to become manifest, declared and acknowledged. We are to make the name of Jesus renowned, render it illustrious. So we see the calling. Are we doing it? I trust that we are. And we will as we seek the Lord, as we ask him to show us our sins.